Hello and welcome to Jack's Viral Podcast. In this episode, lockdown mental health is under the microscope, along with the research being done in a city at the forefront of the fight against COVID-19. We'll also be talking business and find out why Cornmarket Market Street and St Michael's and some of the other city centre streets may look a little different at the moment. So let's get started. We need to think about how we can start addressing people's mental health and make sure those who are isolated can get out and stay connected. That's the message from the CEO of an Oxfordshire charity after a study revealed a quarter of people had significantly elevated anxiety and depression as a result of the lockdown. Here's Leslie Dewhurst from Restore. So the uncertainty about jobs, um, so the, the, the fact that you are um, unable to do a lot of the things that would be your norm for, for you know, making yourself feel um, happier, perhaps you know, going out to join a club or uh, just going around for, for supper with friends, and particularly for people who've had to be very isolated and probably not even had human contact with, with anyone during this period. I think that's incredibly isolating. So, yes, that all adds into the mix, I think. That's the problem. How do you think we should kind of maybe take this research in terms of preparing for this second wave that's being talked about and and potentially more local lockdowns? Should the government, do you think, be considering the fact that a lot of people are struggling with anxiety and depression when they do enforce more rules? Uh, I think that this needs to be taken into account. And, of course, early on in the pandemic, it was welcome when uh, people were allowed eventually to go into bubbles, particularly with people who are um, on their own. Uh, And I think that was recognised and that was appreciated. I think it's trying to think about how we can help people have contact with other humans, uh, but not necessarily be in a confined space. Um, and of course, the, the thing which we haven't yet had to cope with is periods of, of cold, dark, gloomy winter weather with this pandemic. So I think that will set a whole load of new problems to think about. Um, I think there's a lot that we can do as a society as well to think about how um, just how we can start addressing it um, uh, to make sure that there's uh, enough opportunities um, locally for people to perhaps go and um, uh, get involved in something outdoors, um, even if it's only for a short period of time um, each week or month even, uh, just something for, to keep people connected. And when you said earlier that this research wasn't sort of surprising for you, is that because you have sort of seen a similar thing at Restore in recent months? We've had a bit of of both, I mean, sort of negative and positive, actually. So I've had some positive things in. So during um, um, our time over the the lockdown, we haven't been able to have, up until now, any face-to-face contact with the people we support. So all of our support has been done remotely, and that's been either... um, through uh, phone or digital contact. And we have had a few people who have said that actually, though they have got, you know, quite uh, entrenched mental health conditions themselves, uh, you know, and that's why they're using Restore, knowing that other people are also feeling anxious and worried and concerned uh, during the pandemic, people who are, you know, from the, the general population, they've actually found themselves feeling quite proud of their resilience. So we've had people who've almost gone the other way of saying that they've actually coped much better than they thought they would and that that's actually made them feel much more confident. So that those have been the kind of good outcomes of this, but because everyone's in the same boat, I think that's helped a cohort of people who otherwise feel quite isolated and different from others. See, I wanted to sort of ask you as well, um, just a bit about you, yourselves, charities, service providers, how you think or whether you think you might have to adapt a little bit in terms of how yeah. you work in future. 
we do need to keep adapting and we have since the beginning like i'm saying we, we you know all of our support up until now has been uh, remote support so doing group activities by um by it remotely has been quite interesting so getting people to go on their own to go out for a walk in the countryside or into a park and notice a few things which you know the group have predetermined and then come back and then later check in with everybody else about how that was for them so in effect they've done something on their own that's been part of a group activity so that's been quite an interesting thing that we've developed as we've gone along. Uh, we've also developed um, all of our, our training that we do through our recovery college has been online. And um, again, that's been it's quite a big job adapting all the courses to be delivered digitally. Uh, but that was very successful and quite a few people started attending saying they wouldn't have wanted to come to something that if it was actually face to face, they actually quite liked doing the remote training. One thing that we're also very aware of is the effect on people's employment and finances. And so we're doing a lot more around thinking about how to help people with those sorts of problems. Our coaching team already exists within Restore to help people into employment, but employment retention then becomes another issue as well. Mm. And, and do you worry there could be more of a peak in a couple of months' time when the furlough scheme ends and more people might obviously lose their jobs at that point or might hear between yeah. here and then? And No, I think undoubtedly that will be one of the biggest impacts that will happen over the next few months is people actually finding out whether or not they've got a job to go back to if they have one in the first place and the job market being you know completely overcrowded at the moment. So I think that will be a big problem and something that we would really want to help support people with as much as we possibly can. Leslie Dewhurst there from Restore. Now, continuing on the lockdown mental health theme, the first study at how society has coped with the pandemic has found it significantly raised mental health problems. Ruth Madden works at Bridewell Gardens, a mental health recovery service in Chipping Norton, which uses gardening to provide structured intervention for people who are struggling. We spoke to her about the project. Bridewell Gardens is uh, a mental health charity. We're a recovery project working with people who've experienced severe and enduring mental health problems. So people are referred to the gardens by their mental health worker or by a GP, and they work at the gardens with a team of volunteers and uh, our small team of staff. And they might spend up to two years coming to, to work with us, attending once or twice a week and looking after the gardens. And the approach that we use at Bridewell is called social and therapeutic horticulture. It's a quite well-established approach used across, uh, internationally used across the, um, uh, the UK and, and in many other countries as well. And the idea is that working in nature, uh, using gardening, working alongside other people in a really accepting uh, environment where you're not judged, you can just come and be as you are, that you see that people increase their self-esteem, their, um, their self-confidence improves, and you can see real progress and, and improvement in their mental health, even for people who've got quite serious mental health problems. What is the potential to help? What is the therapeutic potential of, um, of gardening for, for mental health? So the, this is a really interesting one. We've seen a lot, especially during lockdown, a lot of anecdotal um, 
evidence, and many of us will have, will have noticed that, of spending time outside or spending time in our own gardens. So gardening generally for well-being is something that's well known to, to, to help. Spending time in nature is something that everybody benefits from. But what's interesting is that there's evidence that gardening as an intervention for people who've had more, more serious mental health problems also can be um, effective. So it's really about uh, having structure and uh, routine, being able to take part in an activity, the way you see the results, you see the impact um, of what you've done um, over time. You also see the little successes and the little failures um, uh, over a season. Um, and um, simply spending time out, out, outdoors, interacting with nature is something that's, that's powerful. So it's more than just um, taking a walk outside or going for a run or a cycle ride outside and enjoying nature in that way. It's interacting with, um, with, with plants. It's caring for, for, for flowers. It's producing um, fruit or veg um, that, that, that's part of what, what we as, as humans seem to, seem to benefit from. We get such a connection from. Been an ex extraordinary time for everyone. Bridewell um, is part of uh, a, a group of organisations and working with the NHS who provide mental health services in the county, so across Oxfordshire, um, the Oxfordshire Mental Health Partnership. And as as a group of organisations, we've been in, in touch uh, uh, very frequently over the last weeks to share experiences and, and, and to help learn from each other and make sure we can support um, people who are um, being supported by our, our different organisations. Um, there are a number of recovery projects of which Bridewell is one. So we work with Restore, who are based in Oxford, and also Root and Branch, um, who are in uh, South Oxfordshire. And all, all of us have seen similar situations. So everybody who would normally be attending the gardens, of course, has been stuck at home. And we've had to make sure that, that we've kept in regular contact with people who weren't able to come to our project for uh, these weeks. So everybody's been experiencing feeling more isolated and obviously um, fewer opportunities to get involved in the, the social things that are important to us. But for people who already uh, are used to experiencing mental health problems, where isolation can be a, a really serious aggravating factor, it's something that can really make your mental health um, worse. Um, we've been very conscious about keeping in regular contact um, with with our gardeners and helping to keep them in, uh, feel connected with the gardens itself. Uh, so for those people who've, who've seen Bridewell Gardens, it's really quite a, um, a, a special site. It's, um, we have about five acres. There's a walled garden and, and a vineyard, and we're um, hidden away between Northley and Finstock in, in West Oxfordshire. And when um, people are working at the gardens, they talk about it feeling like a, like a sanctuary, like an oasis. So we found that even while people were stuck at home, being able to have phone calls or, or, or send emails and, and postcards that talk about what the gardens looks like this week, how it's changed, how corners of the garden, like the allotment garden or the cottage garden, have changed um, given the work that our gardeners put in um, last autumn and in, in the early spring and over winter, that's helped people to feel connected with the gardens themselves, but also with that their their own recovery that they um, that they associate really strongly with Bridewell um, as a place. 
um, we've had amazing feedback of that actually people being able to see pictures on Instagram or Facebook of the gardens and, and remember having um, planted plants in that area or remember having walked through that area when they were going through a tricky period and that's, that's, helped, um, that's helped them feel strong in this time when we've, when we've all felt so isolated and cut off from um, friends and family. Ruth Madden there who works for Bridewell Gardens. Now, an Oxford researcher says some positive steps have been taken to prevent the spread of inaccurate public health information during the pandemic. It comes as a new paper by Oxford Uni is highlighting how fake news is a threat to public health and more attention should be paid to it. Jess Morley suggests monitoring, removing or flagging online content that's wrong. The paper is looking at this concept of misinformation and disinformation. So inaccurate information and deliberately misleading information sometimes bracketed under the umbrella term fake news in the infosphere which is sort of widest widest construed informational environments within which we live in in terms of things like twitter or websites or particularly because we're talking health health apps as well and how that missing disinformation can pose a threat to public health from the perspective of spreading inaccurate ways of treating something or um, fallacies about different types of treatments. So there's a lot of stuff around anti-vaccines, for example, and we've seen a lot of misinformation with regards to COVID as well. And so we're sort of looking at why that's a problem, why public health bodies should pay more attention to it, and how we can make it clear to public health bodies that it's within their remit and then what types of actions they might be able to take in order to tackle the problem. What misinformation have you found then in terms of COVID-19? What treatments might work? There's obviously lots of myths as well at the moment with regards to masks. Um, Lots of people spreading misinformation that masks can uh, make it that you have lower levels of O2 saturation all of these types of problems, um, people spreading, I guess, what you know might have been called home remedies or types of information around what might treat COVID or how you might be, be able to prevent getting it. Um, all of this information clogs the wider environment. So it becomes harder for people to find the accurate information that's coming out from, say, for example, the government or public health bodies. How can health bodies keep on top of the spread of misinformation then? It's really hard because sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between something that is inaccurate information versus sometimes what is just someone's opinion. Um, But we sort of spread things out or set things out in the paper in terms of uh, prevention, protection and promotion. So one thing you can do is monitor more actively the types of misinformation that's being spread online. Um, whether that be looking for certain types of hashtags. We sometimes see studies, for example, that scrape Twitter to see the most popular rumours or myths that are being spread. We can do more to promote accurate information um, as well. And then ultimately your, your sort of hard stop option is to just automatically remove or flag content that is inaccurate or deliberately misleading. Whose responsibility is it, do you think? So this is kind of, I think, a really interesting question, and it's what we try to break down in the paper. So one of the things we do is we say that the infosphere, so like I said, that wider informational environment should be classified as a social determinant of health. And the social determinants of health are the impacts 
of the wider environment on your health, whether that be the types of food that you eat or the air quality. Um, often people talk about things like income levels. All of this stuff impacts on your health care um, and it falls within the responsibility of public health bodies. So everything we have seen largely to do with uh, the COVID response is a public health issue, but you also sometimes see public health responses to poor water quality or more controversial things um, such as banning fizzy drinks of a particular size. And so what we're saying in the paper is that because the infosphere is a public health threat, it should be classified as a social determinant of health because people who are exposed to poorer interferical quality, so people who see more inaccurate information and mostly accurate information are likely to experience poorer health outcomes and that's an, that's an unethical thing and we would like to stop that. So the sort of overarching responsibility of developing frameworks for what should and should not be allowed and how we might tackle that definitely needs to sit with official government bodies like Public Health England um, or the Department of Health or equivalent in other countries. But we're not saying then that uh, online service providers, so your Twitters and Googles and uh, etc., are not responsible. They do have to take responsible um, action as well, and they can respond more quickly than governments can. So it's kind of that split between the public health bodies are responsible for setting out the rules of the game, I guess, and your online service providers are responsible for determining how you might win it. Oxford researcher Jess Morley there. Now, continuing with the research being done at Oxford, they've started to use a phone app to get access to more people for its COVID-19 treatment trials. The COVID symptoms study app has already been downloaded by three and a half million people, and Oxford is now linking it in with two of its clinical trials. We spoke to Dr Mona Baffadel, who's leading one of them. So we recognise that there's increased inflammation or an immune response because of exposure to the COVID-19 virus. So what we'd like to do with this inhaled steroid is treat early COVID, um, so to try and reduce the amount of inflammation that might occur and perhaps even be able to help people from, uh, from developing severe COVID illness. Um, so this is why we have to do it in a clinical trial to see whether the, the research question we have is, 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 is the right one. We also know from the recovery study in patients who are admitted with severe COVID-19, um, in injections of steroids or, or, or steroid tablets do seem to have some benefit. So there might be also some benefit from the inhaled steroid at a much earlier time course in the COVID-19. Interesting. I understand this trial has been going for for a little bit now. Tell us tell us about what's been going yeah, on. Yeah, so we, we have opened a couple of weeks ago now um, in the Oxfordshire region. Um, we have a, a team of four uh, research nurses uh, that are battling through some parts of traffic to get around to see uh, volunteers in their homes um, or at, at the practices that are involved. Um, and we've recruited uh, seven people now, so uh, still early days, but um, at least we've got going. Perfect. Um, this COVID-19 uh Obviously, uh, a relatively new thing. It's a thing where it's felt like the goalposts have, have been constantly shifting, and we had no real idea what we were what we were up against. Um, how important are trials like this and understanding medically how best to fight it? Yeah, I think um, as you say, it, it is a completely new uh, illness, uh, and it unfortunately isn't affecting only one type of person or one group of people that we can target. It's 
fairly relentless and it can go through uh, the, the world as far as it, as it has. Um, so I, I think having scientists, clinicians, researchers, everyone getting on board, volunteers to try and uh, answer questions and test treatments that we think may work um, is going to be all the beneficial for uh, for everyone actually that might be exposed to, to COVID-19. And uh, I understand they're using uh, technology to help as part of the study? Yeah, that's right. So um, we, we've uh, linked up with the King's College team and the contact uh, uh, and, and uh, symptom app um, uh, from the King's College team with the, the Zoe app. And so, yeah, I think using all of that technology to understand what's happening with symptoms would be really good. And then be able, be, being able to capture people when they have early symptoms if they want to volunteer for research will also be really uh, uh, beneficial for all, all round people. Do you have a sense of personal pride that... Um that you're involved in a, in something which is you know, at, the, at the very forefront and in a city that seems to be at the very forefront of, of tackling this global uh, pandemic. Yeah, so um, I guess the, the key word is, is, is global, isn't it really? I think that the pride comes from working with really bright people, um, really dedicated staff teams, uh, re- you know, scientists and researchers who want to link together and, and put ideas together to, to see if if we can answer questions that are relevant to the problem that we face. Um, so the pride comes from actually working within that group of people and the pride comes from the volunteers that take part. So um, I, I guess my pride would be... Uh, amongst everyone as opposed to just myself what are we looking at in terms of a time frame for for the work that you're doing uh showing results and and really really being able to help people yeah so i guess what we're we're trying to ask for volunteers are is that if you develop uh symptoms uh that may be related to covid19 and you you think that you might be wanted to be interested in a research study then having a look at the the website uh, and and contacting the research team who can go through everything that you need to have questions about um from a time point of view i think yeah we all want answers yesterday right but um i think it will take time and we've got to do it correctly uh and so actually yes time is of the essence but we do need to take the time to to do everything appropriately and rightfully by by the study uh, and and by the volunteers that take part so uh, for us we we think uh that this may take uh, uh several months to to reach the numbers that we need um but as soon as that's done then we'll be uh, ready with within the oxford community to uh, to release any results from that uh at work dr mona baffadel there now, healthcare workers are being urged to take part in a global study by Oxford Uni into whether hydroxychloroquine can prevent COVID-19. Multiple scientific studies have suggested the malaria drug can do more harm than good, but researchers think it's being discarded prematurely and could still save lives in the fight against coronavirus. Professor Amanda Adler told Jack FM the John Radcliffe Hospital is among the sites which is participating in the study. We're encouraging um, people to participate in the trial and these are people who work in the healthcare setting all around the United Kingdom. Um, it includes uh, the usual suspects, if you will, doctors and nurses, but it really includes anybody who works in a healthcare setting. It might include an ambulance driver, a care home worker, the porter that pushes the patient uh, in a wheelchair down to x-ray. It includes healthcare workers. Why? Because healthcare workers are at even higher risk 
And so it's a population in whom, if the drug is effective, we're more likely to see it. But also, it's a population that is working to help the nation, and it's a population we'd like to protect. You can read more about that story on our website. A new project in Oxford is helping 35 local businesses cope with the challenges caused by the coronavirus pandemic. More than 100 students from the Said Business School are providing advice and masterclasses on things like marketing, strategy and innovation. The Library Project launched a couple of months ago in response to the crisis, as Maria Zabaldia from the Entrepreneurship Centre explains. Well, it's been great to really find out the strong willingness from their side to do something relevant during the crisis. So they are one of the examples how, on how they are kind of supporting these this businesses. It actually, we've created some business units, and these business units are working directly with a cohort of 35 companies. Some of them are local and some of them are, uh, are within the, the UK and, and they are actually supporting them on specific challenges and struggles that these companies have identified. These uh, students are working together with other students across different disciplines, as well as with some experts on the field that are uh, guiding them through the process. When did you actually launch the Libra project? Well, we launched it very recently, around a couple of months ago. It was a quick response to the pandemic. And we thought, well, um, we see, we, we, we work on entrepreneurship and innovation. We see many businesses really struggling uh, at the current times. How, what can we do to bring our community together to support these businesses? And then that's why we thought, okay, let's let's bring uh, all this community together to make something relevant, and we had an amazing response from students. But also, it was uh, it was really really interesting to find out how many businesses were really looking for support, other than funding support. Which we at the beginning we thought, well, most of the businesses will be trying to maybe extend the runway or maybe get some additional funding. But actually, we ran a lot of interviews at the beginning with some businesses. And we found out that they needed support on marketing, on innovation, on a strategy. And then the whole idea um, came, 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 true. I mean, came, came into reality. I mean, we have 35 different. They all look different. Some of them are at a very early stage. And, and they might be even like an entrepreneur with, a, with, a, with an idea to actually try to move it forward. But some of them are actually enemies with around maybe 100 employees. So just for you to have an idea, we have, for instance, like a biotech startup, but we also have like a plant-based sports supplement manufacturer. We also have like a chocolate a manufacturer too. We have another one on, on the fashion industry who is using technology, you know, is a wearable a technology company. We also have another one which is like a headhunting a service for companies a, just to recruit board-level executives. So the, the, the range of companies that are part of the program is very broad. We also have a couple uh, of social enterprises. And some of the, um, the biggest challenges that they've identified are related to uh, strategy innovation. Innovation is a big thing where many companies have found that their demand or the customer base has shrunk dramatically, and they are trying to pivot and to maybe identify even new markets or uh, new customers sort of segments. And also some of them have already some investors and they are trying to 
maybe have some students supporting them with the investor relations. Uh, marketing also is a big, big uh, need in terms of you know what I was kind of uh, talking to you before on, on identifying sort of new new marketing uh, new market segments and innovation. What can we do? How can we do these things differently? So the, also the challenges are very, very broad, and they are all around these kind of main things that I've just mentioned. But we've had few businesses contacting us and saying, look, this has been extremely useful, not only from the experts that you've sort of brought um, to us and gives us access, uh, but also from the fact that we've been able to be in contact with other businesses. And that sort of peer-to-peer -peer relationship has been extremely useful for them. And they've, they've only started working with the students, but also the feedback has been very, very positive so far. So I would say, I mean, our idea is to, of course, uh, gather some feedback once the program finishes to, to, you know, to learn from the experience and, and look at how we could do things uh, better in the, in the near future. But so far, so far, so good. Now, pubs, restaurants and bars in Oxford City Centre have been taking advantage of relaxed rules on tables and chairs outside to aid social distancing. More than 20 of them are starting to serve people in the new outdoor zones in places like Cornmarket Street and Broad Street. Steve Jones is the manager of The Plough at 38 and says it's been a huge boost to businesses. The difference, quite simply, is if we didn't have the seating area in Cornmarket Street and St Michael Street, we wouldn't be open at all. There'd be no point us trading, because we, which would be taking enough money to make it pay. What's the reaction of uh, your customers been to the uh, the seating areas in, in the centre of the city? Uh, mostly fantastic. Mostly what we often hear is about time. Why hasn't this happened before? Just today, someone said, to me, why did it take COVID pandemic to make this happen? Which is a fair question. But in general, everyone loves it. it it's just fantastic. It's got quite a continental feel to it. Sitting outside in the sunshine, drinking your wine or your beer and having a bite to eat. It's, it works really, really well. Obviously, during the COVID-19 pandemic, there must have been a, a, a great worry for you guys about how you'd be reopening and what that would look like when you did. To what extent has this uh, this measure, this step, uh, eased your, your fears about uh, people being all huddled together? Uh, it's eased them enormously. Um, if we didn't have the outside area, I'm repeating myself perhaps, but we wouldn't be open because people just don't seem to want to come into pubs as much as they do sit outside. So pubs with outside areas are getting on fine. If you haven't got a garden or a terrace or something, people just don't, don't want to come into your pub. So it's, it, without that, we wouldn't be open. It's made a huge difference to us. We're desperately keen for it to become less temporary, shall I say. That's just another way of saying more permanent. Um, it, it works really well. It finishes at six o'clock, which is disappointing. Um, but uh, I don't want to sound ungrateful. The council have been fantastic. It's been a collaboration. They want it just as much as we do. Um, so it's not like it's been a battle. Uh, we, we, we've got what we want up to now. We just hope it can become permanent. And maybe in the longer term, it can go beyond 6 p.m. Is it something you'd like to see become permanent? And once life gets back to whatever normal's going to look like after this, is it something you'd like to see continued? Very much so. Um, we're hoping that uh, people will see it doesn't cause any problems. In fact, it's an absolute bonus. Even people who are not sitting and eating, they walk past it. It's something of a spectacle. So we're hoping that you'll find out there's no issues, no problems caused by it. And then there shouldn't be any reason why it can't become a permanent feature. I'd like to say thank you to the council, to be honest, because they've pushed this. They've been massively 
cooperative in doing this. They wanted it to happen just as much as the pubs and bars want it to happen. So they, they, they've been fantastic with uh, cutting through the red tape, making it much simpler and cheaper process than it normally would be. So the council, thank you very much for pushing this, and let's hope we can work together to make it more permanent and perhaps go beyond 6pm. When we started this podcast 136 days ago, we didn't think we'd still be talking to people about COVID in August, but here we are. Anyway, that's all from us. Thanks for listening. Take it easy in the hot weather over the weekend and stay safe.